You're listening to the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel, part of AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Welcome to the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Young Arthroplasty Group podcast, The Augment. I'm Jenna Bernstein, an orthopedic surgeon with Connecticut Orthopedics, where all we get out of living in the insurance capital of America is more prior auths. And I'm Kevin Son, an academic hip and knee surgeon at Indiana University in Indianapolis, where here we're not clever enough to come up with witty taglines. I'm honored to introduce our guest, Dr. Michael Blankstein, who is here with us to discuss the importance of having an open discussion around obesity in arthroplasty surgery. Dr. Blankstein is an academic orthopedic surgeon and an assistant professor at the University of Vermont. He did his medical training and residency and fellowship at the University of Toronto and was the moderator of a symposium at AUKUS this year discussing obesity in the total joint patient. So welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Um, This is an extremely important topic that uh, I'm so happy that we're talking about because it's very important to get the message out there. Absolutely. So we'll get into it. So tell us what got you interested in this topic. Thanks for asking. So when I started uh, exactly 10 years ago, I actually used to be very proud of the fact that I was one of those surgeons who had strict criteria for surgical patients. So, you know, you know, I stuck to a hemoglobin A1C of 7 or 7.5. You know, I did not operate at smokers, BMI of 40 cutoff, and all these various essentially cutoffs that we were all taught to respect. And I was extremely proud of myself. I thought I was being the best surgeon one could be for uh, enforcing the criteria and just refusing to operate on people until they would get uh, better optimized. Turns out, you know, a few years into my practice, I realized that probably my only really bad interaction with a patient has been when I tell patients to lose weight and come back. And we've all heard those lines. We've all heard the patient say, are you kidding me? Like, I've been heavy since I was five. Do you think I'm suddenly going to lose weight at age 70? I can't even move. I can't even walk around my house. Or people said, are you kidding me? I've tried like a million diets. I've been on Weight Watchers. I tried this. I tried that. Why are you doing this to me? And then, you know, I would give them the spiel about how, you know, it's all about safety, etc. But over the years, it became very obvious that of course, we need to optimize our patients. Of course, we need to do whatever we can to get them to the point where it's safe to proceed with surgery. But what I realized is a group of patients who just cannot lose weight, and they've tried it all. Um, some patients even had bariatric surgery. So I realized, like, is this not right? Like, am I the only one thinking this? Is everybody thinking this? Are we discriminating? Is this fair? Are we doing the right thing? And the more research I did, the more obvious it became that, no, that obesity is such a big problem, and it's not an individual problem that one has. It's not that those patients haven't tried to lose weight. It's not that they don't want to lose weight, but sometimes it's a bigger problem than the patient themselves. For example, some patients live in areas where they have food deserts or food swamps, where they actually don't have access to healthy food. Some patients are not educated on the topic. So it's one of those things that, you know, I thought about. We started a joint health program thinking we're going to help the patients. And we realized that some of the patients are just not going to lose weight. And as a result of that, we're actually 
forcing them to continue to live in pain. Um, so we'll get into like the risk factors and, you know, the success rates, but uh, that was like one of the first things that's happened. And over the years, I've just decided that we all need to be a bit more vocal about, about the fact that we all accepted this as an okay cutoff. I think what you describe is kind of a journey that a lot of surgeons have gone through over the last five, 10 years, as you say. Do you have any sort of soft, hard cutoffs that you utilize in practice? It's all about patient engagement. So if somebody comes in and not willing to do anything, they haven't tried anything, they're con- going to continue to smoke and not take care of themselves, that's a different story. But if someone says, you know, no problem, I'm going to meet the health coach, I'm going to go back and see my endocrinologist, I'm going to do some pool therapy, I'm going to quit smoking. And they come back three to six months later, and they lost 10, 15 pounds, but their BMI is still 48 I think at that point, I'd be willing to operate. And they do understand, but again, they have really no alternative. They're in pain all the time. So if you have a BMI 50 patient that comes into your office with knee pain, severe arthritis, has tried non-operative treatment, hasn't really worked on weight loss or anything like that, is 50 years old, what's your algorithm with that person? I think that if someone has tried everything else and they have bone-on-bone arthritis and it's completely ruining their life and now they can't walk and they can't work, I think we should operate on them. So are you talking to them at all about weight loss? Are you counseling them that you would recommend it? Or at that point, you're just like, we're not even going to try it. We're just going to bypass that step. No, no, I always, always try it. And the main reason, especially when you operate on high-risk patients, you need to make sure they develop a healthy relationship with the patient. And you also want to see that engagement. It has to do with the fact that they're in it. They're trying their absolute best. And so what do you tell them to do? Do you just say, figure out on your own, I'll see you back when you decide, you have a straight algorithm with how you help them to lose weight? Yeah, so this is what they actually led to the symposium in the first place, was we started the joint health program. So I was convinced that if I had a joint health coach, I'd be able to help these patients because I had the incentive. I have that carrot dangling in front of them. And we also met with the endocrinologists and we came up with a whole plan so patients join the program and they have to speak to the health coach and they touch base. But the sad part of it all is that very few patients actually lost weight in a meaningful way. You know, people came back and they say, you know, I lost five, 10 pounds and that's about it. So we tried it all. One of the things that we recently try, are um, studying is actually there's this new class of medications, the GLP-1 agonist, like semaglutide. You hear about them in the news quite a bit because... People are just taking them. This medication, I'm definitely not an expert, but it uh, was initially a, a diabetic medication. It turns out that people are losing a significant amount of weight. So now we're trying that as well. Having a plan, I think, is key because so frequently obese patients who come to see me feel that they've been told, you have to go lose weight, you're too big, come back whenever you've lost weight, and that's it. And it just feels like an empty empty path, no way forward. Can you talk a little bit about kind of challenges setting that up? Because people always talk about programs that they develop to optimize patients and that needs resources. 
any challenges that you faced doing that or kind of getting buy-in to establish something like that so that patients can come in and have a plan and feel like they're be, still being treated by you? Yeah, definitely. So that took us years to get that program up and running. Fortunately, uh, in Vermont, specifically around where I live, there was interest in population health. So when I proposed the idea, people liked it because the sad part was that about two years later, when we're starting to look at the results, we helped with smoking cessation. Almost half the patients, they, half the patients they quit smoking. We helped with diabetic control quite a bit, but the weight loss, that was just one of those things that were just almost insignificant. For sure. And I mean, even outside of orthopedics, when we talk about weight loss, we know that people just aren't successful most of the time. The fact that we hang our hat on a number, it's really quite arbitrary. We're all orthopedic surgeons. We like numbers and we like angles and we like cutoffs, but that BMI of 40 is not even applicable to huge parts of our society. For example, postmenopausal women, they're way more likely to have a higher BMI while not being that overweight. Um, it doesn't account for muscle mass, you know, Hispanics, Blacks, they also have very different BMI, fat distribution and body mass. It just doesn't make any sense. And if you're a lucky tall white man who happens to be quite overweight, you may still make it under the cutoff at a BMI of 39. For example, I quote a study, um, it was recently published by Derek Ward at the a journal of arthroplasty, where they look at specific BMI categories. So they go, you know, 30 to 35, 35 to 40, 40 to 45. And the risk that goes up with that BMI is actually quite marginal. It's not like you're talking about you go from a 95% success to a 50% success, right? You're talking about a very small risk. Do you approach the obese patient and the knee versus the hip differently? We all know that a lot of times patients who have trunkal obesity with thin legs, that knee is going to be just as quick and simple as a BMI 30 knee. The hip can be a lot different depending on male versus female. Do you think that plays a role in terms of the risk and the elevation of risk potentially in terms of surgical time and all that's involved? Yeah, I think we all agree that there's heavy and there's obese and then there's exactly different fat distributions. And people have tried looking into, you know, the amount of fat in front of the knee. And, and I've looked at all these various studies and there's really no one great marker, but there are metabolically healthy obese out there. If you look at the overall complication rates, again, so our success rates in arthroplasty are just amazing. They're higher than almost any other surgical field, right? So we're quoting patients very low complication rates. So let's talk at numbers for a second. You can say, well, if my average success rate is 98% without any complications, and now I'm going to go to 95 when I operate in somebody whose BMI is 45, you could present it as, you know what? Your chances of complications are double. But you can also present it, hey, 95% chance you're going to do well without complications instead of 98. Well, I would take that if I was in pain and agony every single day of my life. Okay. So we know that patients are willing to accept the risk, right? That data has been published. We yeah. know that the risks are still not that high and that people with obesity have a great quality of life after their joint replacement. But surgeons and hospital administrators and insurance companies are still holding on to these arbitrary cutoffs and numbers. So let's start with the surgeons because that's who we're talking to here. 
Why do you think so many surgeons are still holding fast to these numbers? And how do we change their minds? So Dave Llewellyn said it so well. He says, if you operate on someone who's got rheumatoid arthritis, for example, one of those really bad rheumatoid patients, do you know that they have crappy bone, their own biologics, their prednisone, their risk of complications are also pretty high. But the surgery is actually not going to be that much harder for me. But if I'm operating somebody who's 50, yeah, I'm going to have a tougher day. It is a tougher day. So if you're somebody who wants to come in and now do 10 joints in a day and bounce between two rooms, the second you start taking care of the heavier people, you're working harder. And you know what? For me, I'm not a big guy. When I work on bigger people, it is literally harder for me. I need to make sure that I have extra help, extra support. I ask for the biggest residents to come and join me. I'm actually sweating and breaking my back in the operating room. So yeah, so it's very easy to find an excuse because it really makes the operation, I guess, less fun. It makes the operation harder. It makes the closure. Everything is just harder. So it's very easy for us to find a reason not to operate on them. We take care of high-risk patients. We take care of rheumatoid arthritis patients, we take care of liver transplant patients, we take care of many high-risk patients, why suddenly the fat people don't get surgery? They're fine, they're high risk, but it's not, again, it's not like we're talking about 50% complication rates. So first of all, we have to change the story. Another way of approaching it is actually saying, well, we're going to come up with the centers of excellence that they do it and they have a bigger team. They have two assistants in, instead of one, three instead of two. They have a more support, bigger beds. We should be rewarded for taking on the higher risk. Maybe it's okay to only do three or four joints in a day when you're doing, maybe you get paid more for them. Instead, we get penalized. And if you want to dream really big, then what we should really be doing is start advocating to change the way our society eats. Yeah, I mean, I think you really hit the nail on the head because I personally think is that it's technically harder is why a lot of surgeons want to hold on to the numbers because then you don't have to explain that you're not comfortable doing that surgery. And I agree. I think maybe not everyone should be doing those surgeries because if you're not operating on obese patients a lot, it's easy to put in a cup in vertical. It's easy to undersize a stem because you can't get good exposure. I mean, those are really easy mistakes to make. And I think it's harder for the surgeons to say, I'm not comfortable doing this and refer them to someone else. And it is to turn around and blame it on the patient. Totally, totally. I totally agree. And I think that's what we should be doing. If you're not comfortable doing it, do not do it. That is not the message. In academics, we get so used to having a resident, a fellow, a PA, whatever it is. And like you said, it's not easy to do these operations. It's much more challenging, but it's it's very feasible. And there are many surgeons who have themselves and their PA or their NP, and that's it. And can you imagine doing some of these operations with just one person? No chance. Like not you're not going to be able to do that safely. Jenna can do it. <laughs> it's extremely hard. You know, it's funny. We talk about robotics and introduction of new technology. Maybe that's where the technology would be extremely valuable, right? Like this is where, in theory, if you can put in a cup um, with the assistance of a robot without needing to see everything perfectly, I mean, this might be a great opportunity. You know, we always argue about the advantages of technology. I can tell you when I do robotic-assisted knee replacement, and I can tell you on the bigger patients and the stiffer knees, um, it's significantly easier with a robot. So on that note, any technical pearls, you know, for surgeons who are 
interested in doing higher BMI patients. You talked about how you're not the biggest surgeon. I may be the smallest surgeon. So how would you advise people who want to take care of these patients to make sure that they're doing it appropriately? Yeah, so Dr. Schwarzkopf during the symposium gave an excellent talk where he highlighted all these things. I think you have to be in a place where you have the ideal support, ranging from the bed, the bed that can carry somebody of the ideal size, having all the ways to position the patient, again, multiple assistants, the deeper instruments, the, the retractors, etc. So you have to have all of that stuff. You have to also be comfortable with doing these operations. So there are multiple technical issues that one needs to consider. Meningini talks about it. One of the podcasts, actually, that you guys did, that I listened to him, he said, you know, I talked about the high-risk antibiotic protocol, and he says, it's when you know you're doing the high-risk patient, right? Like, what are you going to do? You have to think outside the box, and that's one of those situations. Some yeah. people talk about, like, a Provena or one of those uh, Windvax, they may help. You hit all the points of our next question there, because that was going to be one of the other perioperative things. I think that's really important. There are a lot of these adjunct things that you can consider. Again, you can argue plus minus on a lot of those things and argue about the data, but you think about you're trying to do anything to minimize that patient's risk, right? So whether that's extended prophylactic antibiotic, it's an incisional wound vac, it's, like you said, banking the wound, it's doing an extra wash with uh, dilute beta-9 if you don't normally do that, all that kind of thing to consider adding to your normal operative protocol for this isn't a, a higher risk patient. So I think you hit all those points that are other considerations around surgery, not just the technical aspect itself. I will throw in there too, the one that doesn't get discussed a lot is my residency. Charles Nelson did a lot of really, really big patients and he would put a flat JP over the fascia in the fat layer to capture the fat necrosis and with a Provena on top. And I felt that that made a huge difference. You mentioned this at the beginning, but what's your approach to the other modifiable risk factors? So Operating on smokers, do you make them quit for a certain amount of time? Diabetics, do you have an A1C cutoff? Where do you stand on the other risk factors that are lumped in with obesity often? Yeah, so I, I think smoking, it's funny because over the years, you know, thinking, you know, people always talk about how, how hard it is to quit smoking. I've become less sympathetic towards them and more empathetic towards people with obesity because I know that if you really want to get surgery, you can quit for a few months. With respect to hemoglobin A1C, everyone succeeds, actually. Do you use, you use 8, you use 7.5? Where are you at? 7.5. It's funny. Every, you know, I started at 7, 7.5, you know, creeping up to 8 soon. <laughs> so I'm just going to summarize by saying our takeaways are don't dismiss patients, be empathetic, do the right thing for the patient. And if you think the patient should have surgery and you don't feel comfortable, refer them to the right person. I just want to highlight again, 50% of our patients will be obese soon. And currently in this country, based on a recent study, 50% of surgeons still have a BMI cutoff of 40. And I bet you that's going to change. Also, usually weight loss strategies do not work when studied by orthoplasty surgeons. The majority of patients with BMI over 40 actually do not experience significant complications. And we should not use BMI in isolation to deny patients surgery. Again, shared decision-making is paramount. And you also have to understand that by using strict BMI cutoffs, we may actually be propagating inequities to disadvantaged populations because currently 
high BMI patients in this country are Hispanics, Blacks, and women. So just be aware that maybe that's one of those implicit biases that we're not aware of. And if you want to do something positive, instead of enforcing cutoffs, we should actually be doing something that's bigger and advocate into providing better educational sources, nutritional teaching, resources for healthy food, etc. And the most important thing is that as we've seen in medicine, in any field, a multidisciplinary approach, it's the best. Um, just like we take care of our hip patients, hip fracture patients, you know, we realize that if we work as a team with multiple services, that's the way to go. That's what I do. I try to involve other services. And the key is to take a patient-centered approach. And the message gets driven home. Perfect. Thank you so much to Dr. Blankstein for joining us. You can find information for how to join the Young Arthroplasty Group at AUKUS.org and follow us on Twitter at AUKUS underscore YAG. Thank you for joining us for the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.